because it comes through the microphone every time. folks, Matthew Garnett here with, in layman's terms, we are back and better than ever this, uh, this time of year when it's a little hit and miss with the podcast. We did a rerun for you last week with the Sam Harris-Ben Shapiro debate that's going to kind of lead into what we're discussing this week, which is morality and God. Do we need God to have a proper morality or do we need God to have morality make sense? We'll talk about how all that kind of plays out. I mean, obviously, people who don't believe in God are moral people, generally speaking, and God be praised that they are. Um, How does that work out? Why why are people that don't believe in God moral when they really have no reason to? That's kind of what we're going to talk about as well. But before we get to all that, let me remind you to go to laymanstermsradio.org and donate to what we're calling the Steelers Project now. I haven't updated any of that yet. I've got some stuff going on with... uh, with the website, we're trying to revamp everything right now. But for now, that's still available to you to donate to the project where we are going to take former inmates and teach them how to drive trucks. We're going to bring underprivileged youth from the communities. We're very close here to Chicago, Detroit, Indianapolis, um, and so on. And, of course, right here in Fort Wayne, where we can bring folks in, teach them how to drive trucks, give them a career hope for the future, all that sort of thing, and it's it's not that difficult. That's what kind of continually baffles me about this whole thing about the inner city is there's really very easy ways to get out of that uh, that are not difficult, uh, are not complicated for sure. They might be difficult. Uh, so I always remember this uh, survey they did at Brookings Institute. They're kind of a middle left of center uh, think tank who studies these sorts of things, and they basically say there's three things that will guarantee you'll never be in poverty in the United States. Uh, Get your high school diploma. Simple. Maybe not so easy. I don't know. Um, Don't have children until you're married. Simple. Maybe not so easy. And get and keep a job. Very simple thing to do. All things that are very, very doable. They're not difficult things in, in the sense of you don't have to be a genius. I mean, I could send probably send producer Isaac out right now. He's going to be 15 next week. And he could probably pass a, uh, a GED, get, you know, get his graduate equivalent degree, you know, no problem. And Lord knows he's not a genius. So <clears throat> anyway, um, it, that, it doesn't take a genius to do that. It doesn't take a genius to, re- to figure out what it takes to not have children before you're married. That's not a complicated process. Everybody knows what, um, what it does take to have children. Even producer Isaac knows what it takes to have children at this point. And uh, he, he knows that it's not it's not a complicated thing to stay out of, but it might be difficult to resist. And then get and keep a job, that might be a little bit more difficult to do because sometimes jobs can stink, but with the right mindset, um, it's not it's not that difficult. But those two, the Brookings Institute says those two before the getting your high school diploma and, and waiting before waiting till marriage to have children, um, 
you know, are, are two, two, of the, two of the three biggest ones. I think they even, in fact, say, wait till you get out of high school to have children uh, or to get pregnant, and you're going to be in a lot better shape. So, so anyway, it's not a difficult thing to do. We believe that if we just offer the opportunity to some of these communities, offer the opportunity to some of these guys coming out of prison, uh, they'll take it and they'll run with it. Some of them won't, obviously, but we're, we're hopeful that it will be a worthwhile project that will garner uh, some guys coming in and really turning their, turning their lives around. And then we're also of the philosophy around here that, you know, we're on a beach full of star, starfish and we're not going to be able to throw them all back in, but we're going to make a difference to the ones that we can possibly make a difference to. So go to laymanstermsradio.org and donate to the, the what we're calling now the Steelers Project. Okay, so like I said, we're going to cover uh, a couple things today. A little bit different in the format if you're watching this on the live stream or on YouTube. You get to see our Truckers Hack segment, which is just going to be about five minutes long. I, did, I tried to do a whole channel on this, and it's just really not that interesting to sit around for an hour or 30 minutes or whatever, 15, even 15 minutes, uh, to watch uh, suggestions on how to secure loads and that sort of thing. I mean, even I don't really do anything like that in an extended way. If I'm looking for something... Uh, for some tips on the internet, I want a five-minute video or you know, quick, helpful thing. So we're going to do it right here. We've got plenty of truckers who watch who l- watch the podcast, listen to the podcast. So if you if you're a trucker who listens to the podcast, either on terrestrial radio or on the internet or from our side or however you might listen to it, um, go to the YouTube channel. And right after right after I do this opening monologue, we'll do the trucker hack segment. Generally speaking, and just a five-minute little thing about you know ways you can improve trucking how i'm how i'm doing it so some of you vets out there if you see it and you say oh yeah garnett you shouldn't do it that way you should do it this way it's way better that's that's the kind of thing i'm looking for and so um hopefully you can pass that around to some of your trucker buddies and we'll get that kind of thing going on on this podcast um so long as you're watching it live stream on or on, or on facebook right now for instance or um or on YouTube once uh, once producer Isaac puts it up on YouTube. So we'll do trucker hacks, and today we're going to talk about doing what I call super securements, um, and talk about that. And then we also want to come back to the marketing the Messiah podcast, uh, especially the interview I did with uh, Cameron Riley. Just clear up a couple of issues there that we touched on a little. I mean, there's so much there to talk about. We really. Folk ended up focusing in on the, the scriptural aspects of what he had to say, which it was my intent for sure. That's what I know the best. I mean, I'm f- familiar with philosophy, familiar with apologetics, but my strongest suit is I know my Bible. And that, that can help you. That can get you pretty much all the way there. And it did in that interview. That's that's where I wanted to go with it. And um, Cameron was gracious enough. He knew he was coming on my podcast and I was going to be the one in control. <laughs> so, um, so I was going to get to ask the questions. And I, I directed all the questions toward uh, how he handled Holy Scripture. And so, uh, but there was a couple of the more apologetic, academic pieces of it that I wanted to come back and touch on. So we're going to bring in a couple of books uh, from Bart Ehrman to kind of discuss those about, you know, Jesus. one touching on Jesus' resurrection, the other touching on did Jesus actually exist. That's one of the uh, proposals, one of the claims that they make in Marketing the Messiah is that Perhaps this guy Jesus that we read about in the Bible never even really existed in the way we we read in Holy Scripture. So we're going to address that. And then finally we'll get to the do we need God to be a moral people and discuss really what boils down to Aquinas' uh, um, argument from, from morality. It is, it is a... That argument was developed out of, out of Aquinas' uh, five ways, which yeah, that all is a long, interesting conversation, which... 
I think we'll get to, we're going to kind of start doing some more of this uh, teaching type of podcast here going on in the future, but really this is, uh, this is the beginning of it, and, we're, and I draw on acquaintance a lot for my apologetics. She's the one that makes the most sense to me, and I think really is the foundation for even modern apologetics, just, uh, just writ large. So you can really trace just about anybody, any argument back to acquaintances five ways in some way, shape, manner, or form. And we're going to discuss how morality leads us to understand or believe that, the, that probably there, there is a God who gave us morality. And the reason we have such commonality in that sense, we, we all have a sense of moral duty in one way, shape, form, or another, whatever that duty may be. But we all have a sense of that. There is morality. Uh, but exactly how does it get formed? What are the specifics and that sort of thing? That's what we're going to touch on. And, uh, and yeah, that's what we're going to cover on today's podcast. And so, uh, again, if you're listening to us on YouTube, we're going to start off with Trucker Hacks right now. Um, if you're listening to us live, we're going to Trucker Hacks. If not, we're going to skip right over and talk Bart Ehrman and Marketing the Messiah. But here we go with Trucker Hacks. I was a firm believer. Many of the discussions of the resurrection are focused on just this question of whether the visions were veridical or not. Most New Testament scholars are themselves Christian, and they naturally tend to take the Christian view of the matter, that the visions were bona fide appearances of Jesus to his followers. You can find such views forcefully stated in any number of publications, including the recent and very large books by Christian apologist Mike Lacona and by renowned New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. But some prominent New Testament scholars argue vociferously on the other side of the question as well. For example, the German scholar and skeptic Gerd Ludmann argues that the visions of Jesus experienced by Peter, and then later by Paul, were psychologically induced. In his view, when Jesus died, his body decomposed like any other body. Thus, Ludmann says, since Christianity is rooted in the physical resurrection, but Jesus actually was not physically raised, Christian faith is as dead as Jesus. And then there is the late British New Testament scholar and intellectual gadfly Michael Golder, who argued that there are numerous occasions when people once provided supernatural explanations for things that now we can explain through science. But once a natural explanation exists for a phenomenon, we no longer need a supernatural one. For example, Gulder points out that in the Middle Ages, the effects of what we now would call hysteria, paralysis, tremors, anesthesia, etc., were attributed to demon possession. No doctor today would think she was grappling with demons when treating hysteria. Now we have a natural explanation. Okay, so... What the point of this is not so much that, that you've got scholars on both sides of, of the debate saying, well, Jesus, you know, like N.T. Wright and Lacona, they're saying, you know, and by the way, veridical just means real. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Uh, you did, was there an actual resurrection of a dead guy? Uh, so Lacona and Wright will say yes. Uh, other scholars will say no. But the point that Airman is making here that I want to get through, and this this is something I didn't have a ton of time to talk to Cameron about, but most scholars are convinced that the followers of Jesus had some kind of experience with a resurrected Jesus. Some will say it was veridical, that it was real. Some will say that it was some sort of uh, hallucination, uh, like like this particular scholar. I can't remember the the name Airman mentioned, but this this is the broad consensus among critical scholars. Okay, so let me let me just talk about this for a second because it's going to set up our next clip as well from Airman. Is you've got you've got believing scholars, um, and then you've got critical scholars. Really, is what you've got. Now you've got some lot overlap there. You will have some critical scholars who say they are believers, but essentially, critical scholars are those who believe that that. The Bible is not inerrant and in, not the inerrant, infallible Word of God. That has its 
problems really rooted in, in philosophy more than anything. Uh, the reason why we need an inerrant, infallible word from God is more of a philosophical question more than it is a technical question. However, that's what the critical scholars are really after. Okay, so we don't have an inerrant, uh, infallible word of God. It is a production of human beings. And so, therefore, we can study it like any other piece of literature, especially ancient literature. And so, what are we, what are we shooting for here? Well, we're shooting to find out, okay, where did these authors get their information? What sources were they using? Uh, was, was this author, was, was St. Luke correct when he said this? Or was St. John correct when he said this? Was St. Matthew correct when he said this? Or was St. Mark correct when he said this? Both of them can't be right. That's one of Ehrman's famous quotes, is he'll quote two, two parts of two different Gospels and say both of them can't be right. And you're kind of stuck dealing with that. Anyway, that's what critical scholars should. And, of course, the believing scholars are, are going to do something different with Holy Scripture, believing that it is inerrant and infallible, and they're going to treat it from that, that foundation. And you'll find that, as with most things, uh, your, your presuppositions, your, your preconceived beliefs about something uh, will weigh a lot into how you deal with it. Uh, and so, uh, the, but the point is, is that uh, whether you're a critical scholar or, or belie- what you would call a believing scholar or, or an inerrantist, um, they all agree that, uh, that Christianity was just not made up out of the mind of St. Paul, uh, whether he was a true believer or not. They, they would deny that St. Paul had any real experiences. He might have been hallucinatory or whatever. That's, that's really a minor issue to, say, a guy like Cameron Riley. The, he, does, he is not convinced by the evidence that, that, um, that Jesus' followers had experiences with a risen Christ. They don't believe that that happened. Um, they are in the minority of scholarship, uh, period, end of story. They're, in fact, they're on the fringes of the scholarship on this matter. Talked to Gary Habernas a little bit about this. He told me, hey, make sure your listeners know that these guys are, are fringy guys. Now, that's not a dig on Cameron. They, 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 I believe, come to their, I would hope that they come to their conclusions in somewhat of an honest way, but I also am convinced they do have an agenda. There's an agenda behind what they're doing. Um, everybody has their presuppositions. Everybody has their worldviews. Question is, what's yours? Uh, and if you tell me, no, I don't have any uh, biases here or preconceived notions or uh, predispositions to believe one way or another, then I already know we're in big trouble because you don't even recognize what your what your pre, uh, presuppositions are. With the uh, that you don't even know what the worldview is you're proceeding from. So Cameron and I didn't get it get to get into that, but I wanted to talk to you guys uh, about how. Really, this is, uh, you know, marketing this eye is way out on the hairy edge of the fringe of the scholarship. Just like Ehrman said, most critical scholars uh, agree that, that the way Christianity got kicked off is people who followed Jesus when he was alive had experiences with him after he was dead. Now, those might be hallucinations. They might, they might have a naturalistic explanation, explanation that we can't get our hands on right now, but, um, but it can be explained. So they say, well, we don't know what exactly happened. They had these experiences and we can't explain it. That's how, that's where they leave it. That's really the most honest, honest thing to do. And that's what most scholars do. But it is interesting, isn't it? Uh, that, they, that you really can't explain away the resurrection in a naturalistic. They don't have a naturalistic explanation for it. They say there's got to be one. There's got to be a natural, a perfectly reasonable explanation for this, but we just don't know what it is. Okay, fair enough. Um, and we say, well, seems to me that the preponderance of the evidence points to a resurrection. This is where N.T. Wright goes. And look, I've got don't have a ton of use for N.T. Wright, generally speaking. Um, but but on this, he's excellent. Uh, he wrote that the tome, the 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 resurrection of the Son of God, I believe, is what it's called. Uh, just, you know, big thick uh, book that talks about that. So there, so there's that piece. That's where most of the scholars 
sit uh, with with a, with how Christianity got its start, not with the notion that Saint Paul made it up uh, based on uh, Jewish tradition and and the notion that he wanted to popularize Judaism as they claim in marketing the Messiah. So there's that piece, and then I want to go on to another piece from Bart Ehrman um, in his book, Did Jesus Exist? So, producer Isaac, cue that one up for us. Pharisee. Others have said that he was a member of the Dead Sea Scrolls community, an Essene. Some have said that he taught a completely bourgeois ethic and that he was married with children. Yet others have suggested that he was gay, and these are only some of the more serious proposals. Despite this enormous range of opinion, there are several points on which virtually all scholars of antiquity agree. Jesus was a Jewish man, known to be a preacher and teacher, who was crucified, a Roman form of execution, in Jerusalem during the reign of Roman Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Even though this is the view of nearly every trained scholar on the planet, it is not the view of a group of writers who are usually labeled and often labeled themselves, mythicists. In a recent exhaustive elaboration of the position, one of the leading proponents of Jesus' mythicism, Earl Doherty, defines the view as follows. It is the theory that no historical Jesus worthy of the name existed, that Christianity began with a belief in a spiritual mythical figure, that the Gospels are essentially allegory and fiction, and that no single identifiable person lay at the root of the Galilean preaching tradition. In simpler terms, the historical Jesus did not exist. Or if he did, he had virtually nothing to do with the founding of Christianity. To lend some scholarly cachet to their view, mythicists sometimes quote a passage from one of the greatest works devoted to the study of the historical Jesus in modern times. The justly famous Quest of the Historical Jesus written by New Testament scholar, theologian, philosopher, concert organist, physician, humanitarian, and Nobel Peace Prize-winning Albert Schweitzer. There is nothing more negative than the result of the critical study of the life of Jesus. The Jesus of Nazareth who came forward publicly as the Messiah, who preached the ethic of the kingdom of God, who founded the kingdom of heaven upon earth and died to give his work final consecration, never had any existence. This image has not been destroyed from without. It has fallen to pieces, cleft and disintegrated by the concrete historical problems which come to the surface, one after the other. Taken out of context, these words may seem to indicate that the great Schweitzer himself did not subscribe to the existence of the historical Jesus. But nothing could be further from the truth. The myth for Schweitzer was the liberal view of Jesus, so prominent in his own day, as represented in the sundry books that he incisively summarized and wittily discredited in The Quest. Schweitzer himself knew full well that Jesus actually existed. In his second edition, he wrote a devastating critique of the mythicists of his own time, and toward the end of his book, he showed who Jesus really was, in his own considered judgment. For Schweitzer, Jesus was an apocalyptic prophet who anticipated the imminent end of history as we know it. Jesus thought that he himself would play a key role in the future act of God, in which the forces of evil in control of this world would be overthrown and a new kingdom would appear. For Schweitzer, Jesus was very much mistaken in this understanding of himself and the future course of events. The end, after all, never did come, and Jesus was crucified for his efforts but he was very much a real person, 
a Jewish preacher about whom a good deal could be known through a careful examination of the Gospels. So that's really, you know, Ehrman brings out Schweitzer here, and that is the majority of scholarship, is that Jesus was, was at least, he existed, and was at least an, an apocalyptic Jew, which meant that he was probably a Pharisee. Uh, that's why he probably argued with the, was recorded as arguing with the Pharisees about, over what was going to happen. He might, he, some scholars do believe he might have seen himself as the coming Messiah, although he might not have equated himself with God. Um, you know, anyway, at, at any rate, um, most, most scholars believe that Jesus existed as we see him in the gospel and that, that we can know a lot about him. Uh, whereas again, you take, uh, the, the claims from marketing the Messiah and, and, and our friend Cameron, uh, really, Jesus was a complete uh, fabrication uh, made up out of the mind of, of St. Paul in order to uh, promulgate Judaism throughout uh, the, uh, the, the, the Gentile population of the Roman Empire. So the Gospels even were something that were, uh, were in the imaginations of Paul's community that they made up after Paul had gone around preaching this Jesus uh, and, and promoting him. And then they wrote these gospels about him, uh, but it wasn't based on any real person, is what they would say. That's that is again the mi- minority of the scholarship. Even you know, again, remember Bart Ehrman is not a Christian. He was a Christian. <laughs> he's not anymore. He's abandoned Christianity. Now he's a critical scholar. He teaches at Duke, and he is, you know, one of the leading New Testament critical New Testament scholars um, in the world. And he he would say he. <laughs> Uh, I asked Cameron why he didn't get Bart Ehrman to, to uh, do marketing the Messiah, and I, I think I know why he, he didn't do it. He, you know, because he would have, he he would well, it wouldn't have been for, good for Cameron to to put him forth because you know he really wanted to put forth the Jesus mythicist uh, thesis, and Ehrman wouldn't have helped with that for sure. So at any rate, um, that's that's just a couple of things I wanted to clear up from that. Again, was you know really uh, was really fascinated by my interview with. With Cameron, hopefully you can do something more in the future. Maybe talk about something like this and scholarship. Uh, but just realize that the, the, even the critical scholars aren't as sure and certain uh, about their position on Jesus as as the as the Jesus mythicists. They they really make some bold pr- proclamations. And I would encourage you to read uh, "Did Jesus Exist" by Ehrman. It really is is fascinating, and uh, will we'll show you that it you know uh, a bunch of hand waving as far as Jesus's existence and who he was and if he rose from the dead. Really doesn't cut it, even even among secular historians. You just can't wipe that stuff away and explain it away very easily. There's there's a lot more to it, um, and and I think Ehrman treats it uh, really a lot more uh, fairly and circumspectly than than your average Jesus mythicist generally does. Okay, so from there, let's uh, let's go ahead and we're going to move on to uh, teaching about Aquinas and morality and that sort of thing. Um, and really what the, the, the question we want to ask is, do we need uh, God to have morality? And this, the short answer is, no, we don't need God to have a, a moral structure, but it helps a lot. <laughs> if, you, if you have God, and not only, not only believe that God exists, not only are you a deist, uh, but that you, that you understand God to be personal uh, and believe that he has said something to us, Allah via Holy Scripture. So there, there, we're going to walk through that hopefully, as much as we can get through today. What we can't fin- up, do today, we'll finish up next week and kind of continue on this on this trend for the next while. So um, let's go ahead and go to the teaching slide there, Producer Isaac. Talk about the myths of morality. And um, 
the first one you'll generally get, especially here in America, is what I call the your morals, your morals, my morals position, which is just the, the very simple, uh, you know, you, you have your morals, I have my morals, and that's, that's, how, that's the reality of things. Um, and a couple of things with, with that, that come to mind right away. I mean, that sounds that sounds logical, doesn't it? In some in some sense. Well, you have your you have your beliefs, and I have my beliefs, and you know you shouldn't force your morals on me. That's kind of how we think in the West. We're very, you know, in a sense, somewhat in, individualistic um, in the in the way we think about everything, including morals. So, you know, who are you to come along and say that I should you know believe that this is wrong or that's right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's a, that's a very American way to think. Even even conservatives think that way. We you know, you know who are you, who are you, Joe Biden, to come along and tell me that it's the right thing to do, to get a to get a a uh, COVID vaccine, right? <laughs> that's that's the moral thing to do. Yeah. Now, now I'm not advocating or, or or I'm not advocating for or against vaccines. What I'm saying is is that we don't like p- people coming along and telling us what to do, especially morally. Now. Let me take something like the vaccines and say, look, the reason we don't or the reason that some people would resist uh, the instruction from somebody else to do something is because they do have a fundamental moral problem with it. And when, when somebody comes along that's an authority and says, you must do this, this thing that you believe to be unnecessary or Ill, Ill, immoral, then that's when, that's when people have the problem with it. All right. And I, I would say that's across the board. Uh, on both sides of the aisle, people come along, you know, so if you, if you've got a, if you believe that abortion is a, is a, you have a right to, to murder your unborn child and somebody comes along and says, no, you can't do that anymore, anymore. Now, see, you, you violated that person's sense of morality. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's where the problem really lies, uh, is that how do we sort that out? So, you know, if you, uh, if you want to do, if you want to do a loan on a desert island, then that might work. Because then you don't have to interact with anybody. Really, morals boil down to how we deal with each other, right? How we, how we deal in, in, you know, in interacting with one another. And if you don't have to interact with one another, then you really don't have to have a moral system. You can, have, you know, you can believe and hold dear whatever you want because you really don't have to interact with anybody else. Now, the, the, where that falls short, so a couple of things there is... You know, morality is very other-centered, generally speaking, but it also deals with us, right? So if, um, you know, if producer Isaac here said, you know, I want to go out and start shooting heroin, you know, I think that'll be good for me. That's, you know, I, you, you've, Dad, you've got your morals and you're trying to teach me the right thing to do, but, I, but for me, shooting heroin is going to be the, the right thing. Now, it would... Um, other than, you know, being very deeply hurt and upset that, you know, my son's gone out and decided to shoot heroin. Okay, yeah, that's, that's there. But, but mostly what, what's upsetting me about that? Well, he's hurting himself. So, um, so God, or, or, you know, a moral system, let's not get into God yet. <laughs> uh, a moral system does take both into account. So even if you are on a desert island, you're going to have some sense of morality uh, to protect yourself from danger as well. So morals have to do with others primarily. Uh, but they also have to do with taking care of ourselves, and, and, that, and that's all intertwined. I mean, it's not it's not as easy as this dichotomy. You know, there's a mix of it, 
uh, there as well, where, you know, it's, it's it, you know, how Isaac takes care of himself uh, affects, affects me. So if he goes out and shoots heroin, that, that upsets me and his, his mom and I, see. Um, his, you know, his, his, there's no victimless crimes, I guess, is, is what the point I would make here is. And so, you know, the more, your morals, my morals thing just simply does not work because, first of all, we have to live with each other. And even if we didn't, even if we could live in our own little isolated bubbles, uh, your morals and my morals is not, uh, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fly. Uh, because you can never say there's there never be a situation where you could say it's you know it's good for me to go get addicted to heroin. Yeah, I mean that's how. In what sense? Even if you're on a desert island, would that be the good thing to do? I mean, if you if you're on a desert island and you found a cache of rum, uh, and and you just drank yourself to death, in what in what sense would that be good? Maybe you're trying to put yourself out of your misery. There might be some some way to talk about it, but you would still have some sort of moral code. Right, and that's what—that's really what um, everybody has. Now they might have a distorted or um, perverted moral code, but they have a moral code. And the your morals, my morals thing kind of drives at that, and that's helpful to, to us because that just tells you that everybody has a moral code. All right. Now another challenge to something like this would be to. Uh, to just contradict it, contradict, contradict producer Isaac's moral code. So if producer Isaac thinks it's a good idea to go out and shoot up heroin and he says, well, you've got your morals and I've got mine. Then what I say is, um, yeah, well, I've got my morals and you, you may have your morals and I have my morals, but my morals say that it's wrong for you to go out and shoot heroin. What do you think producer Isaac? Just to know, I, I would never actually do this. Yeah, well, this right. Example. A, this is just an example. It is a hypothetical. Uh, Producer Isaac is defending himself, saying that he would never do this, which is true, I believe. But the point being, I could simply say, no, Producer Isaac, you've got your morals and I've got my morals, but um, but my morals are going to trump yours, and I'm going to say, no, you're not going to go out and shoot heroin because I'm your father. Now, um, and we're going to get into some more extreme, exa- extreme examples of this when we talk about um, morals being a, a cultural construct or, you know, learn through uh, cultural upbringing and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but the, point we're, the point we're making here is that what, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, what am I doing when I'm contradicting producers, producer Isaac's morals, right? And, and trumping it in a way that where I say, I'm the dad and you're going to do as I say. I'm using my power, right, or authority, right? Now, what's the pro- what's the problem with that? That seems to work out pretty well. It does between producer Isaac and me because we're father son, and that's a that's a fairly traditional uh, hierarchy hierarchical concept that we all embrace and say, okay, we're you know we've been on board with this for a while. But what happens when it's it's another situation like government and citizen? And the only thing they're using, or the only thing they're appealing to, uh, to get you to behave in accordance with the moral code they're trying to put forth is their power and authority, then how does that usually work out? Historically, it doesn't work out very well at all. And and again, uh, in fact, if you push it to an extreme, you'll uh, you'll end up in some sort of civil war over it. So a great example of that is something like slavery where one 
the North had a, um, a moral code that said slavery was immoral. The South had a moral code, quote unquote, that said slavery was perfectly fine. And we'll, and we'll kind of get to, you know, how moral codes, you know, how is it that you can say you don't have your, you have the, the your morals, my morals thing isn't the reality. It might, it might be ugly and messy, but it's the reality. We'll get to that. Uh, but, but the point is, is how did, uh, according to uh, the your morals, my morals construct, how did the North, you know, uh, impose its morals on the South? Well, it was through civil war. And, it, you know, it, at base, if that's how morality is done, hey, producer Isaac, turn my mic down just a little bit. It's peaking a little bit too much. Okay, cool. Um, you, uh, if, if, if that's really the only foundation of, of your morality, then that, that's a very, very dangerous situation because eventually what has to be done when there is something highly, when the stakes are very big, then people have to die. So if, if you know, this is, this is Nietzsche's uh, will to power. I mean, this is what he talked about, um, you know, when he said God is dead. Everybody think everybody thinks. Well, this is Nietzsche's big statement of the fact that he's an atheist. He is. He was an atheist uh, by by all available evidence. But that's really not the point Nietzsche was trying to make when he said God is dead. What he what he said was God is dead, and we have killed him. And how you know how should we wipe the blood from us? I mean, in other words, uh, if if the moral code we're all going to adhere to and conform to is going to boil down to sheer power, which is what Nietzsche was saying. It's going to boil down to sheer power. Somebody's going to make up the values and the morals and the purpose of life, and we are going. They are going to have to enforce that through power, which usually the best form of power at this day and time is the point of a gun or some sort of weapon. All right. And so what we're what we're looking for here are the problem. One of the challenges with the your morals, my morals thing is we can simply contradict it, and, and then then we're just left in a power struggle. Who has the most power at, the, at this point? With producer Isaac and me, I have the most power. Right. I can I can, you know, lock him in his room, whatever else, call the police. There's a number of things I can do to stop him from exercising his moral code. Um, I have the power to stop him. And that that's really how what the morals morals boil boil down to. And I'm going to say that that's bad, (laughs) that we don't want to go that route, because historically what we've seen is that if we go that route with establishing moral codes, uh, it usually doesn't end well. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about the myth. Here's another myth of morality that. Now, actually, let's. Uh, I'll start a fresh page here. So, myth one is your morals, my morals. Um, myth two. Morals are, I guess. It's, Speak correct English. Morals are a social construct. Morals are a social construct. Well, this is a, this is, this is your morals, my morals writ large. All right. This is just a note. This is a larger version of your morals, my morals. And again, you just debunk it by simply contradicting it. Or at least you show how chaotic it is. If you debunk it. So producer Isaac says, man, did you see? He, producer Isaac is a my morals, your morals. Uh, morals are a social construct guy. Right? He's, you know, I've got, I've got my morals and you've got your morals. And, 
You know, China has its morals and the United States has its morals and Europe has its morals and Pakistan has its morals and Afghanistan has its morals, etc. Okay, so I know this about producer Isaac. And he comes to me and he says, oh man, did you see on the news the other day how we, how we droned those innocent people in Afghanistan? And I say, so? So what? So, so what? Some innocent people died. You gotta, you gotta, you know, in order to make an omelet, you gotta break some eggs, producer Isaac. So, you know, that's, that's my moral construct. And I say, we're the United States and we're the best. And, you know, whatever we got to do to, to continue to be the best, if that means we have to drone some innocent people to do it, I'm all for it. Right. And then you hear the gas. Oh, oh no. Right. That's, that can't possibly be wrong. So that, see, a couple of things that, that happen when you contradict that sort of thing is, um, you start to expose people's values and those values usually end up be, being assumed to be, to be universal because producer Isaac, even if he's a, your morals, my morals guy, he's going to be offended by that statement, right? He's going to say, how can you say that? I'm like, what, are you proposing a universal standard of, of what's right and wrong? And he really, if he's going to be consistent, he's got no place to go, but to say, yeah, I am. I'm, I am pr- proposing that, that droning innocent people, uh, it is wrong all the time for no matter who does it or for what reason. Oh, okay. Now we're, now we're out of a, your morals, my morals type of situation, aren't we? Um, because what he's proposing is a, uh, is, is a standard value for everybody that it's wrong to drone innocent people, Right. It's wrong to uh, take somebody's life unjustly. That's a that's a universal value. We'll, we'll get we'll get to the point where we talk about how uh, these universal mor- there's there's uh, there's universal morals and we all exercise them to some degree. Just depends on what degree. That's where the difference really lies. It's not in your morals, my morals. It's the degree to which you exercise um, certain basic fundamental principles that we discover in nature. All right. So there so there's that. And what I'm going to propose is. Morals as a social construct. Morals as your morals, my morals. This is bad, right? This isn't going to get us to the place we want to be. In fact, it's going to get us to a very dark and dangerous place where the only way to rectify certain conflicts is to kill each other. And um, we've kind of decided that that's a bad way to go. So then we've got uh, some great moral philosophers come along and um, they propose what's called the correspondence theory of, of morals, where essentially what you do is we learn morals through experience. So let's take, let's take a physical, this is the best way to illustrate it. So say, say producer, I'm, you know, I'm going to pick on producer Isaac Lager because he's the best example. Say he, uh, you know, he wants to get up on a high place and, and jump down and see what happens. We say, well, is, is jumping from a high place a good idea? Oh, we don't know. Let's, let's run an experiment. Producer, you, you head up, you've been chosen to jump off the high place and we'll see if this is a good idea or not. Producer Isaac jumps off the high place, splats on the ground, dies. Oh, bummer. That might not be a, such a great idea. Well, we, we're, we're, we're pretty sure that jumping from a high place is not a great idea, but we better make sure we better run the experiment again. So, you know, I send, they send Jen up there, my wife, they send Amelia, my daughter, you know. So after about four or five times of trying jumping from the high place, we find out we pretty much get the same results. People end up dead or crippled. 
for life. And so with the correspondence theory is what we're saying, okay, what we've observed is, is that this kind of behavior produces bad results. Now, um, that's okay. It's not, it's better than your morals, my morals. At least we've got some objective morals going on here, right? That's what we're really shooting for because, because if they're objective, at least there's something that we can all say, okay, this is something we know that people jumping from high places results in death or severe injury. Every time we can all agree, this is, this is not good. This isn't going to produce human flourishing. Also look out for stuff like that. When people say not good, Okay. Uh, when, when you hear people who say, well, you've got your morals and I've got my morals, and then you say something to them that's utterly atrocious, like we should bomb innocent people, and they say, that's not good. Ooh, now, now again, they stepped into the realm of objective universal morality. They're suggesting that necessarily there has to be a good that we're after, an ultimate good. See? So how, how can you say it's not good? How can you say it's not good to exterminate 6 million Jews? What do you mean it's not good? Well, we've decided that it's not good. Um, but then I'm going to go back and decide that it is good. Well, then those of us who, then what are you left with? Those of us who think it's not good will come after you that think it's good and will kill you. That's how it boils down. That's what we're trying to get away from. Trying to get away from, from that sort of thing. So, so do note that when you have people talking, they get very inconsistent very quickly is what I'm trying to say. With just a few simple examples, they will start to speak in extremely value-laden language, and they will get very, very passionate about this. Uh, because one thing about personal, quote-unquote, personal morals, what happens with them is people tend to get a lot more passionate about personal morals because they're theirs. They've, they've internalized these. These are personal to them. They're, they're part of who they are, so they think. With objective morals, yes, the morals are a part of you, that you believe in the morals, but, but they are more, you have less passion toward them uh, in the sense that you don't get as easily offended. Is, is my opinion, my experience that when you when you challenge somebody, uh, somebody's per, you know what they perceive as their own personal morals, they get way more offended than when you challenge somebody's morals who has an an objective sense of morals. All right. Um, so, correspondence theory, uh, can, we can discover objective morality through correspondence theory, but it's trial and error. Right. That's basically what correspondence theory is. Trial and error to try to figure out. The good. All right, believing that there is a good. And usually they have something at the base, like what's good? Well, human flourishing. I agree, that's good. Human flourishing is good. Right? And this is where we're really gonna okay, well, why is human flourishing good? That's my next question. Why? I mean, why do we want to have human flourishing be good? Now I can answer that question. Um, and it's not because we say so. It's for other reasons, all right? But anyway, we got trial and error. So so you guys, if you've listened to my podcast at all, um, you, you've heard me talk about Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein and how they've written an entire book on how um, uh, getting married, legally married uh, for life to a heterosexual partner um, that you involve, no, two people, husband and wife for life that produce children. That's the most fulfilling um, way to live and fulfilling sexual experience that you can have. And how did they figure out? I mean, these are two self-described atheist um, evolutionary biologists who are saying this. How did they discover this? Through trial and error. They looked at human history and said, look, you know, where, you know, or they, they surveyed people. They did all kinds of research on this and they said, hey, we figured out after people, you know, 
100,000 people, 200,000 people have jumped off the high place of, oh, I'm going to go out and be sexually libertine. And we figured out that being sexually libertine isn't very fulfilling at all. In other words, you know, doing whatever you want sexually with yourself does not produce human flourishing. But they had to do this to trial and error. Hey, let's see if um, mutilating ourselves sexually and turning our, trying to, quote, turn ourselves in from a man to a woman is going to make us happy sexually. Well, statistically, it doesn't. I mean, the suicidality rate for people who transition, quote unquote, doesn't go down. It, it, in, some, in some cases, it increases markedly. So, um, uh, so, yes, while we can get to some objective uh, ideas through, um, through correspondence theory, we, it, it's, it's, it's not the best way to go for a number of reasons. First of all is the time piece, right? We have to have people jump off the high place enough times to determine it's bad. We have to have enough people do sexually libertine things to determine that that's not going to produce human flourishing. So a bunch of people suffer in the meantime. So the, whereas if we have, you know, an already learned objective, uh, morality, we don't, we don't have to, you know, if, for instance, and we'll just cut to the chase and say, if God says, do not murder, we should, we should murder. We don't have to put it to the test. We don't have to do experiments on it to see, uh, if it, uh, in fact, uh, decreases human flourishing. We already know that. All right. So it takes too much time. The other piece is the authority, right? Because... Uh, authority, I'll get that right. The authority piece is, so yeah, you've got Brett Weinstein and Heather Hine coming along and saying, well, we're evolutionary biologists who are saying that, well, um, we've discovered through our research that this is the best way to be sexually fulfilled. Somebody's going to come along and say, well, who are you to say, right? This It's this whole, this whole sequence here. So they're going to have a problem with authority. Um, they're also going to have a problem with the scope, right? So while, you know, you might research this down and say, well, you know, uh, doing something drastic to alleviate uh, uh, gender dysphoria, like having yourself um, surgically transformed, that's not the issue. Um, that, or that's, 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 that's not the move. A lot of times when we're doing correspondence theory, I mean, we can figure out that, you know, people jumping from a high place is a bad thing, but we don't know all the details of it. We also might realize that, hey, you know, somebody, you know, having a, an uneven sidewalk or somebody will trip and fall and crack their head open. That's the same thing as falling off a high place, but it's a more nuanced version of it. See, so you really don't have the scope of it. So in other words, um, is, is it just as sexually fulfilling for two men to be together for life? Right. What, where, where does that piece fall into place? All right, so you don't get the scope. All right. <clears throat> so again, we're going to stay. Correspondence theory, while better than your morals, my morals idea, I mean, it's going to get us there in, in a way. Again, we're assuming when we say good, something like human flourishing is a good thing. I'm, I'm already putting forth that presupposition to say that your morals, my, th my morals theory of, of doing morality is not good because we're looking for human flourishing I'm already putting forth that presupposition, all right, um, and saying, okay, well, we, and we need something objective, but correspondence theory at the end of the day just doesn't cut it for mainly these reasons here. Right? We just really can't, and especially the time. The time piece is the one that's 
you know, because <laughs> what makes me laugh about, in a sense, it's, la- it's, it's, it's laughable, but it's laughable, but it's also sad that, you know, two brilliant scientists like Hying and Weinstein can come up with this, you know, by observing nature. Um, it's great that they did, but, but God promulgated this principle to us millennia ago. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. All right. And we have all the details and we have all the authority we need. We have the scope and the authority from Holy Scripture to get that principle without, you know, two evolutionary biologists in the year 2021 come along saying, hey, guys, you know, what would be a great idea is if we didn't put our hands on somebody that, that, it, that we're not married to. How about that? I mean, that would solve a lot. I mean, right now there's some some people, some big time celebrities in trouble. I mean, the, the governor of New York just got just had to resign over this. Because he felt like he needed to put his hands on people that, it's not, that are not his wife. You know? Um, that, how, how about we go back to that principle? We just decided, you know, it's not a good idea. Good results are not going to come for you if, uh, if you put your hands on somebody that's not your wife. We've known this for a long time. So why are we trying this again? Trying to trying to some way, right? Our passions run deep, that's why. Okay, so... Your morals, my morals, the, the, the uh, cultural construct of morals doesn't work. The correspondence theory doesn't get us there. So what are what do we get to? Well, what we want to talk about is natural law principles. All right. And we are going to have to do that next week. Next week. All right. But we got that out of the way. We got the your morals, my morals, the correspondence theory of morals out of the way. And we're talking about, okay, those, those two systems aren't going to get us where we need to go. First of all, the, your morals, my morals thing is going to end up in just in a big power struggle. That's the problem with that. The, uh, the correspondence theory is, is takes too much time. That's, that's its biggest problem. Too much time to figure out, okay, how many, get, how many people do we have to send up to the high place to jump before we figure out it's bad? Yeah. Um, what, what we want to get to are some, are some natural law, timeless, universal principles that we can all come around, um, uh, and agree on. We got to get to some objective things that we don't, that take no time. This, this is our, this is a principle and we know it. We're not going to violate it. All right. How, how do we get there and where does God come into the picture or does he, right? And of course I'm going to say he does, uh, eventually, but, but I'm trying to walk, walk us through that. Get us there um, in a way that, that makes sense to everybody, step by step. Um, so, when uh, when we as Christians, if you're not a Christian, this might not apply to you, but in a sense, it does. Uh, when the world, the the flesh, your sinful nature, and the devil come against you on these things, you can say, okay. Right. This is a way you. This is that's what that's what apologetics is good for. Generally, is that first of all, our sinful nature wants to kick against what God said. Right. Our flesh, our passions. We want you know, Governor Cuomo uh, knew that putting his hands on women that aren't his wife was going to get him in trouble, and he did it anyway. What what was that about? It's his flesh. It's his passions. Right. Um, the world is going to tell you this. This sort of thing is okay. That's why me. That's why the Me Too movement just makes no sense to me. Is okay. You guys have said this is okay, and now people are doing it, and you're all of a sudden freaked out about it. Um, you know, and and well, yeah, but it's about consent. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, but the world is going to say these things are okay, um, and then we as Christians know that that uh, Satan, our enemy, 
is lurking around like a prowling lion, right? Looking to whom he may devour, whether that be Christian or non-Christian. You don't have to believe in the devil to, uh, for this to happen to you, by the way. It does. Anyway, so hopefully this is, uh, this is whetting your appetite for what's to come. Um, we, uh, we can, you know, we'll, we'll kind of get into, we, what we want to get into is how, how do we get to this, this idea that there are these natural law principles? Where do they come from? How, how did they, you know, how did do, do, how do we discover them? Um, you know, do, do they suffer from the same, the same problems as correspondence theory? And then, and then why do we, uh, if we do need God, how, do, how does that need kind of manifest itself? Where, do, where does that come into? Cause uh, to be honest with you, this whole, uh, argument about morals and authority and that sort of thing, that's, that's what turned me back from being, from becoming an atheist because I read Richard Dawkins, um, God delusion. And my, my take on it was, this is just as, uh, this is just as authoritarian, just as fire and brimstone as any Southern Baptist, you know, traditionalist, fundamentalist Christian I've ever heard preach. That's what it reminded me of. And I thought, wait a minute, something is, something's going on here that I, I'm not aware of. And it's that very thing. It's that idea of, okay, who's Richard Dawkins to say? Um, why does he have the authority? Um, you know, this idea of inclusiveness, how, how does that kind of manifest itself? You know? So <clears throat> anyway, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that started, you know, these questions started to come to mind. Um, but, but just to give you a hint on where we're going with this a little preview of next, next time, we're going to look at Romans, uh, one, 19 and 20, where St. Paul teaches us for what we can know about God is plain to them because God has shown, shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Hey, uh, Isaac, you can put me back on the React if you want. Um, so people know the difference between right and wrong. That's that's one thing that, that we're going to get into is um, it's it's interesting, isn't it, that we that we complicate ethics. That we we know what's right and wrong. I mean, our conscience tells us these things. We we know the difference between right and wrong. But 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 our again, take the Governor Cuomo example. Um, he knew that messing around with these women is going was eventually going to get him in trouble. But he did it anyway. Um, and what do we do instead of just saying, "Hey, you know what? What I did was wrong." And I knew it was wrong and I knew it was going to ruin me. And now I'm ruined. And so I'm really sorry to everybody. And I apologize. I shouldn't have done that or whatever to all this excuse making like, oh, well, this, you know, this is just how my family behaves. This is how I was raised, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you guys are, you, you're being hypocrite. So that's what happens with our ethics, isn't it? We, we know the difference between right and wrong. And then we do the wrong thing anyway. And then we make excuses for it. And then, then we have to have whole departments at universities talking about ethics and morals and how does this whole thing work and how do we sort it out? And, you know, you've got your, uh, we get into all this stuff, don't we? When we know, we know what's right and wrong. And that's where natural law principles are going to come in. I'm going to tell you how we know what's right and wrong. So it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. We'll get there. We know what's right and wrong and we do the wrong thing anyway. Um, and I'm going to show you how all that works next week. Okay. Till then, go to laymanstermsradio.org. Donate to the Steelers Project. Still says Men of Steel there, but same thing. Donate to the Men of Steel Pro- or the uh, Steelers Project, and uh, we will see you next week.
Till then.